0: Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are an intentionally welcoming community. We invite and are glad to see all of you here this morning. It is my pleasure this morning to introduce to you uh, our speaker for the morning. His name is Jim Checkley. He is a scientist-turned-lawyer who's currently working uh, with an electric transmission company to bring wind power to the population of Central Texas. He first attended the First U Church of Austin in August of 1977 while in graduate school at UT. Uh, he began doing uh, summer sermons in 1987 after a multi-year bout with Hodgkin's disease. And his involvement with the church uh, during that time, since that time, has been wide and varied. And um, today's sermon will be his 28th sermon from the pulpit of the First Union Church of Austin.
1: As we enter into this time of spiritual exploration, let us cultivate an attitude of openness to the new curiosity about the unknown, and wonder for the sacred, however we may find and experience it. Now, the theme of my talk today is the courage to trust. And I want to begin our exploration with a quote from Eric Weiner's book, The Geography of Bliss, One Grumps' Search for the Happiest Places on Earth. (laughs) Trust is a prerequisite for happiness. Several studies, in fact, have found that trust, more than income or even health, is the biggest factor in determining our happiness. Unquote. And now, if you will join me in reading the mission statement, affirming our mission statement,
0: which is in our order of
1: service, in unison, we gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. You know, it's, it, it's hard for me to believe that it's 25 years since the first time I got up in this pulpit only it was in that room. Because this... Sanctuary hadn't been built yet. And when I did, when I was asked to do a service for the first time, I went to our then minister, Matthew McNaught, and I said, Matthew, I need some help. What am I supposed to do with this sermon? And Matthew McNaught said, well, Jim, I can only give you a little bit of advice, and that is that sermons are supposed to be about God, and they're supposed to be about 20 minutes. (laughs) So... I may run a tiny bit longer than that today, and I hope you'll forgive me. There's an old joke, and it goes like this. What's the opposite of progress? The answer, Congress. (laughs) Congress has been the butt of jokes for years. But last October, trust in Congress to do the right thing fell to an all-time low. Only 9% of respondents to a New York Times poll said that they approved of how Congress was conducting its business. And Americans' trust in their government in general also fell to a new all-time low, even below Watergate levels, with just 10% of those polled believing government will do what is right all or most of the time. Now, this isn't much of a surprise, is it? Not for Congress, anyway. What may be slightly more surprising is the fact that Congress and the government have plenty of company. According to the polls, the trust Americans have in just about everything is at an all-time low. Let me give you some examples. In late June of this year, a Gallup poll showed that the trust in public education had fallen again, with only 29% of the respondents saying they had a great deal of confidence in the public education system. Now, for comparison, this is down from 58% in 1958 when Gallup first began conducting the poll. And to give you just more of a flavor of how pervasive this is in America, I want to give you just a few more numbers. These percentages that I'm about to give you represent the number of people who said they had a high level of trust in the inst- that the institution in question would always or almost always do the right thing. Banks, 22%. TV and other electronic media, 17%. Major corporations, 15%. The press, 14%. Law firms, 13%. And Wall Street comes in dead last at 8%. And of some interest to us today, trust in organized religious institutions is also at an all-time low, despite the fact that the United States happens to be one of the most religious countries in the world. Even trust in the future is at an all-time low, with a majority of Americans believing for the very first time in recorded history that the next generation will not be as well off as they are. And by all-time low, I really mean it. I want to give you some context for this. Consider the following. 36% of Americans believe in UFOs and believe that they are spacecraft from another planet. 36%. That's higher than any of the numbers I just gave you. And what that means, what that means is that more Americans think we're going to be invaded by space aliens than they think think they're going to get a fair shake at their banks, that corporations will do the right thing, or that the press will tell the truth. I think that's pretty pitiful. So you might ask, are there any institutions that are doing well? A couple. In a comprehensive poll that was taken in July of 2010, people gave only two institutions Ratings at or over 50%. And they were the military at 59%. And small business at exactly 50%. And what about the professions? What about the professions? Well, the health professionals still rate very high. Doctors and nurses, although those numbers have declined in recent years. Along with uh, firefighters, teachers, and pharmacists who also rate pretty high. Now, there's one number that's of very special interest to me, since I am a scientist and have a couple of degrees in chemistry, and that is the fact that the trust in science is also at an all time low. That is, the number of conservatives who say they have a great deal of trust in science has fallen to 35%, which is down 28 points from the mid 1970s. And this was presented in a paper by uh, a guy named Gordon Gaucher. That was published in the American Sociological Review and which relied on data from the mid 70s until 2010. According to the paper, the trust that moderates and liberals have in science has remained relatively constant, but that of conservatives has plummeted. And bear with me because I want to talk about this just a little bit. What's most disturbing about this to me is that we're not talking about uneducated conservatives. In fact, we're talking about educated conservatives, those with college degrees and with graduate degrees. According to Gaucher, conservatives with college degrees decreased in trust faster over the period of time we're talking about than those that only had a high school degree. He finds these results profound because he says, quote, it implies that conservative discontent with science is not attributable to the uneducated but to rising distrust among educated conservatives. That gave me some pause, and it was disturbing to me, because it implies that this lack of trust is political and ideological and has little to do with science itself having been shown to be untrustworthy, although the politicization of climate change has not helped in that regard, I'm sure. What he says is, quote, it kind of began with the loss of Barry Goldwater and the construction of Fox News and all these conservative think tanks. The perception among conservatives is that they're at a disadvantage, a minority. It's not surprising that the conservative subculture would challenge what's viewed as the dominant knowledge production groups in society, namely science and the media, unquote. And I would suggest to you that this polarization between the right and the left has in fact impacted every single aspect of America and the people's trust in government, institutions, communities, and even themselves. Take, for example, the recent Supreme Court decision on health care. You would think that of all the institutions in the government, the Supreme Court would be viewed as providing an objective decision based on law. But that's simply not the case. We see the court as ideologically split, and when Chief Justice Roberts upheld the health care law under the Tax and Spend Authority, conservatives felt betrayed, and liberals were stunned. The way Fox News reported it, you'd think that Roberts had just sold the country down the river, and I suppose that's how conservatives felt. But that's not how it's supposed to be. We are so used to an ideological, if not cynical, view of the court that we can't remember, well, the days when there was at least an outwardly expressed belief that the court would do what was right under the Constitution. Now, I'm sure that a lot of this isn't news to you. You live it every day, just as I do. So you may be thinking, Jim, you're right, things are bad. We know that. People can't be trusted. Institutions can't be trusted. Government can't be trusted. Seems like nothing can be trusted. So what are we supposed to do? My answer to you today is as simple as it is difficult. Trust anyway. That's the lesson I want to bring to you today. Yes, it's bad out there, and we've been betrayed at every level, but it is important, I would even say imperative, That we regain our sense of trust. I know. Sometimes it's silly to trust. That's one of the lessons of the story of the scorpion and the frog. Sometimes it is silly, dangerous, and foolish to trust. And I'm not, and I get that, and I'm not suggesting that we act foolishly. There is, I think, however, a big difference between having an attitude of trust and being a dimwit and trusting when trust is a silly thing to do. You know, the thing about the scorpion and the frog is that the lesson is that scorpions, and by extension people, cannot help themselves, even if it means their own death. Scorpions sting. And people, well, people betray our trust. And we have plenty of examples of that, right? Think of all the politicians who ruined their careers having affairs. I'm not going to name them, you know who they are. In fact, history is riddled with men and women who just couldn't help themselves and in the process hurt others and ultimately destroyed themselves or their careers. But from a religious point of view, the story of the scorpion and the frog goes even further than that. Catholics and fundamentalists believe in the doctrine of original sin. And original sin says that all humans are born sinners, corrupted, as it were, by the sin of Adam and Eve. And from the moment of birth until death are nothing but sin machines. I found a wonderful expression of this belief on the internet that I want to share with you, where a fundamentalist minister claimed, quote, Have you ever heard about busy people who hit the ground running? In the delivery room, we hit the obstetrician's catcher's mitt sinning. We are born sinners. Now, we don't believe that, do we? We Unitarian Universalists? Do we believe that people are born sinners? Which, by the way, makes original sin the very first example of a sexually transmitted disease. (laughs) But I don't think so. We may be a creedless church, but we do have the seven principles. And I don't think that believing that all people hit the obstetrician's catcher's mitt sinning is consistent with them. In fact, such a belief is wholly inconsistent with the very first principle, that we avow the inherent worth and dignity of every person. This seems to put us on the opposite end from the Catholics and the fundamentalists who believe that all babies are born corrupted. Not much inherent worth or dignity there. But even so, we are not naive and we recognize that people will betray trust, will behave badly, and even commit atrocious acts. But our first principle, our opening position, as it were, is to affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Said another way, we believe we begin with an attitude of trust and then we go from there. This reminds me of the saying that I put on the cover of the Order of Service. In God we trust, all others pay cash. You've heard it before, right? In Islam, there's a similar saying. It goes like this. Trust in Allah, but tie up your camel. I kind of like that one. I even had a t-shirt made of it back in the 70s. And the sentiment of these sayings reminds me that Ronald Reagan famously said about a nuclear disarmament treaty with the Soviet Union, quote, trust but verify. Remember that? Trust but verify. The notion there, of course, is to move forward, but make sure that you have mechanisms in place to ensure that what has been promised will, in fact, be done. Now, these sayings all make sense to us on a gut level, right? But are they really talking about trust? Are they? Where is the trust if you're going to verify anyway? Might as well just say, we'll agree to your treaty, but only if we can verify, because we don't trust you. And I don't know about you, but I don't think God is going to be ordering donuts and coffee anytime soon. So the expression really is, pay up now, because we actually don't trust you to pay later. And finally, I don't know much about camels, but I suspect that they, like horses, don't stay put unless they are hitched to a rail. And so the expression could very well be, tie up your camel because if it runs away, it's your fault, not Allah's, who doesn't seem to care what happens to anybody's camel. Now, I'm making light of this a little bit, but there is a profound question here. A profound question. Can we trust? I mean really trust. In a world where we know the only things that we can trust 100% of the time are death, taxes, and the Cubs not winning the World Series. (laughs) Now, I made a little joke about that. But I mean it. This is actually a very, very profound question. Because it turns out that trust is essential, essential for all human relationships to work well and for us to actually be happy. And I'd say that makes trust pretty important. And I want to be very clear here what I'm talking about. There are two kinds of trust, I think. There is the common ordinary trust, which I will call transactional or relational trust. This is where you say, hey, I'll be back at 7 o'clock to pick you up. And lo and behold, there you are at 7 p.m. This kind of trust is founded on reciprocity, fairness, and mutual respect. John Gottman, who is perhaps the most famous marriage counselor in the country, says that we trust in this sense when we believe that the person who we are trusting has our best interests at heart, or said another way, has our backs and will act accordingly. This then is the ordinary trust in human relations, and it extends to trusting institutions from this church to the government to the banks to the media. It's trusting that they all have our backs and will do right by us. Now, this kind of transa- transactional or relational trust is precious and hard to come by. It's what we Americans lack in relation to our institutions and leaders, and it also seems to be increasingly lacking in personal relationships. And here's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I may be way out there on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. People don't seem to be getting together to do things like they used to. That's how it seems to me. Everybody wants to do his or her own thing and has a personal music player, a personal smartphone, and even when they hang out together, they are alone with their music and their social media. Am I the only one bothered by the proliferation of screens and people's obsessions with them? it Good. Thank you. <laughs> Yay! (laughs) You know, is it really the case that having 500 friends on Facebook means that you have 500 friends? (laughs) I personally believe that you can't know if somebody is really your friend until they've inconvenienced themselves for you. Are all those Facebook friends ready to inconvenience themselves for you? And how would you know? And here's something for you in the hanging out and getting to know people department. I was stunned when I heard this. Did you know that IBM is now conducting meetings by avatar? No, they are. It's true. People who attend the meeting manipulate a two-dimensional version of themselves on the screen, and the avatars shake hands, they sit around a table, and they talk to each other through a cartoon image. And remarkably, IBM says that when people meet this way, their affinity for each other goes up And they are more cooperative and get more done. So soon we'll be saying, I may not trust John, since I never met him, but I really like his avatar. (laughs) Welcome to the brave new world. But there's a second kind of trust I want to talk about. Okay, this is the most important one. This is what I'm really talking about today. It's more of a spiritual or innate attitude about life and the world. It's the trust that comes from an inner strength that provides us with confidence that however the world turns out this day, we will deal with it and we will be okay. You could call it faith, but I like to think of it more as a trust. A trust that the world is a knowable, understandable place, that I am an integral part of it, just like our UU principles declare and that each one of us has the ability to create a quality environment for ourselves and others. It's the ability to approach life with a trusting attitude, one that, like our first principle, allows us to view the world, our institutions, and each other with an opening position of trust, that we can change the things we can control and have the wherewithal and the ability to deal with those we cannot. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's important. But before I talk about that a little more, I want to suggest at the outset that things might not be as bad as we think. With our 24-7 cable news outlets trying their best to outdo each other, every single bad thing that happens is burned into our consciousness with laser-like power in HD. You've heard the expression, no news is good news. Well, I will suggest to you that the news media act on the presumption that good news is no news and that they therefore ignore it. And why not? We seem to be drawn to tragedy, heartache, and loss like the proverbial moth to the flame, and they're looking for ratings. So we need to take the media blitz with a grain of salt. We need to be careful about how much we buy into, how bad things really are. Nonetheless, I do think it is important to strive for a trusting attitude. And the one, one reason for that is because trust is an essential element of life. Study after study tells us that without trust, things break down, whether it's at a cosmic level with your God, a government level, an institutional level, or a personal level. Here's your bumper sticker moment. Trust is the lubricant for human interactions. Trust helps us navigate the world in a way that minimizes stress, fear, and worry. When trust is absent, we are under stress. We become first vigilant and then hyper-vigilant about betrayal, real and imagined. We build walls, both figuratively and in reality. We require confirmation of everything, verification of everything. It gets difficult to do business. It gets difficult to coordinate activities that require cooperation and planning and execution over a long period of time. Sometimes it gets impossible to get anything done. Sounds like Congress, right? And when we get to that point, when we do, when trust is truly ruined, psychologists will tell us that some relationships just can't be saved. It's sort of like trying to unburn a burnt pie, it can't be done. You just have to throw it away and start over. I confess I feel like this with respect to our politics, that it's broken beyond repair. And there are some studies that would support this conclusion. But then again, what choice do we have but to go forward and try to reconcile it enough to at least get along? Trust is also important because there is powerful evidence that having a trusting attitude leads to happiness. I quoted at the beginning of the service from the book The Geography of Bliss, in which the author explains the connection he found between trust and happiness. That connection is, in a nutshell, that the people who had the most trusting attitude about the world, institutions, and each other, were the happiest people. This makes sense to me, given how negative life can be if we have little or no trust in it or ourselves. This is also consistent with studies about happiness in Europe, We Americans might think that the people who live along the Mediterranean would have the greatest overall level of happiness, right? Great climate, Mediterranean Sea, all that. But this isn't the case. The Italians and the Greeks are not happy at all. It turns out that the Danes and the Swedes and the Finnish are the happiest, despite living in the cold and the dark. And not coincidentally, these people also have the strongest attitude of trust about themselves, the world, and their relationship to it. Just one more example. A Canadian researcher who looked at the connection between trust at the office, at your workplace, and happiness found that just moving up one point on a ten-point scale of trust in the management of the business has the life satisfaction equivalence of something like a one-third increase in income. A little tiny bit of trust equaled a fair amount of money. Trust and happiness, they go together. And trust, of course, is a two-way street. Trust is the, a reciprocal phenomenon that requires that we ourselves be trustworthy. And how do we become trustworthy? For starters, the, all the researchers say, be honest, keep your word. They say that by doing the little things right and well, we, we create an aura of trust. Keep confidences. Share personal information. If we divulge something about ourselves, we appear to be more trustworthy than when we hold things close to the vest. Of course, discretion is important here. We don't want to scare anybody off right away. Do things that are in the best interest of the other person. That is the very definition of trust. Spend time together. In this era of texting and Facebook, nothing beats actually being together except at IBM. Finally, be real. Apologize when you make a mistake. We are all human and we will all make mistakes. How we handle our mistakes is important. Studies show that doctors who apologize to their patients when they goof up are far less likely to be sued. And remember, people want to trust. We just have to give them good reasons. Finally, Having a trusting attitude is good for our souls. It is. By this I mean that having a trusting attitude inures to our spiritual benefit much more than it matters to those who we trust. In this respect, I see trusting others, be they persons or institutions or governments, a little like I see forgiveness. Let me explain. When we forgive, we really need to do it for ourselves, not the other person. Forgiveness takes a load off our hearts and souls and lets us be free of the negativity and stress and anger and pain that goes with carrying a grudge and and being hateful and unforgiving. The act of trusting works in much the same way, I would suggest to you. Trusting, even in the face of betrayal, allows us to heal, gets rid of the stress and negativity, and provides a positive psychological environment. Trusting allows us to view the world through lightly tinted rose-colored glasses, as it were, and provides a faith in the unfolding of events in our lives that lets us approach life with a better attitude and, it turns out, a better opportunity for happiness. And again, I will emphasize that I'm not saying we should act foolishly or naively, far from it. We need to be sensible and take precautions and enter into our transactional and rational trust deliberately and with our eyes wide open. But the courage to trust from a spiritual or innate, innate point of view is more of a perspective, a way we choose to look at the world as we live our lives. For you see, courage is not about ignoring reality or denying anxiety. It is instead the will to act in spite of reality and anxiety. That said, the courage to trust is choosing to empower yourself, choosing to empower yourself and your choices rather than sinking into cynicism and negativity. And here is my last tidbit of the day for you. Psychologists tell us that the marriages and friendships and relationships that last the longest and are the happiest are those where the participants view each other through lightly tinted rose-colored glasses. As it is with love and friendship, so I suggest it is with life in all its myriad aspects. So let me conclude by saying this. There are reasons why trust is at an all-time low in virtually every aspect of life we can think of. It would be easy to decide not to trust and protect oneself with emotional, psychological, and real walls. But if we want to make things better, both for ourselves and others, then don't we have to take the first step and even in the face of betrayal, bring an attitude of trust? Somebody has to make the first move. And if we want others to trust us, shouldn't we develop and project an attitude of trust ourselves? Now that will take courage and will mean being strong inside. It will also mean having the faith, confidence, and inner strength that come what may, be it betrayal, hardship, or natural disaster, we can deal with it. And amazingly enough, all evidence says that if we do this, that payoff for each of us, will be a happier, more satisfying life. And trust me, I can live with that. (laughs) I was an acquaintance of the late Carl Sagan. During one conversation with him, he said that we are all made of star stuff our very atoms and molecules having been forged in the heart of a now long-dead star. Shortly after his death, I was standing on the catwalk of the large telescope out at McDonald Observatory, being in awe of the canopy of stars over the Davis Mountains. I was thinking about Dr. Sagan when the thought occurred to me that when we wish upon a star, we are actually wishing upon ourselves. And that this is as it should be, because we are all responsible for our own dreams. Amen.
0: This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.